Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I'm with John Johnson and we're going to talk about his presentation at SOMSA 2019, uh, Guerrilla Hospitals in the Modern Day Battlefield. Um, John, now, with a title like that, you really expect kind of a how-to guide of setting up a guerrilla hospital in today's battlefield, which is very much not really what I got out of it. Um, so if you could, can you tell me, you know, what was the thought process and how you set it up and, you know, why you presented things in a different way? That's, that's a fair question, Dennis. Um, to, to be perfectly honest, in the beginning, I did kind of um, have some aspirations of Having a how-to guide, because um, what I was trying to avoid initially when I first sat down to do it was to not have another like, hey, look at me. Not that I feel like I did a, a big look at me presentation the first time I did it at SOMSA, but um, certainly kind of lends itself to to do that continuously. So that was the first um, like hiccup I think I had when I set this up. Uh, as I did kind of look deeper and deeper into it, one my tendency to be um, in love with disruption and and uh, causing some chaos here and there um, couldn't help but giggle at the fact that I knew that still everybody was going to be expecting that and I'd be presenting something different. Um, but also, it just became more and more prevalent to me that my best practices and the more I tried to explain like how I did whatever I did became less and less um, like relevant the more and more I studied it and kind of and the longer it went between when I did it and what people were doing at the very moment so that left me at this like pivotal stopping point of do I just scrap the name and title everything and and tell someone say hey sorry um I had this grand idea and I'm stuck or do I just re-look at it and take it from a different angle um which is what led to the presentation. So yeah, that's kind of the gist of, of how we got to where we're going. So what I got out of the presentation is something definitely new to this podcast. It's been on a, a few other podcasts, like uh, Element Rescue's podcast on it, is uh, High Reliability Organizations, or HRO. And on one of the slides, you had five, I guess, uh, maintenance of HRO, which are, um, they're preoccupied with failure, their reluctance to simplify, sensitive to operations, commitment to resilience, and deference to expertise. If you, if you could, would you please walk through, you know, what these points are, what they mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, first I will say that a little, Disclaimer, um, I'm definitely not an expert in HRO, um, definitely a novice in it, but have found some really good ways, I think, of applying it to um, not just what I do educationally or uh, medically, but just as a whole in my life. Um, so I do say it's a, a great uh, practice, I guess, and I think I have a pretty strong grasp on it, so hopefully I can present it in a more clear way. Um, but yeah, there's, so there's five 
core principles, I think is the best thing to call them. Um, much like um, I discussed earlier about best practices, I don't really believe anymore in best practices. HR is actually kind of what helped me get to that point. Uh, what I mean by that is not that, you know, people don't do things well, but the nuances of what made it so that they did well isn't a matter of their practice. It was a matter of their core principles, and they just happen to be more efficient or, at that time, able to adapt better to their environment to get to those core principles. Uh, I think in my presentation, I discussed it a little bit and talked about the difference between um, me drawing you a very specific um, set of guidelines or directions to my house versus giving you my actual address and a GPS, um, things that, or maybe a map and a compass, things like that. Um, those would be more likened to what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to tell you how to get to my house only one way, and then there's a car accident, and it throws everything off. Um, so with that HRO, so the first one, preoccupation with failure. Um, for the most part, I think it's kind of innately obvious in what it's talking about, but it doesn't mean that we're um, chicken little and we're obsessed with like the world collapsing upon us. It's more that you as a person should be looking and seeking out the the faults inside whatever you're doing, your, the system that you're working in, um, the thought process that you have, the AAR that you're reviewing yourself and how you did. You're not looking for what you did right um, because those are just simply signs that the system at that point in time was working properly. But looking at the opposite, and that's encouraging yourself and others to share what went wrong. Um, so that's the preoccupation. So, reluctance to simplify. Um, this one admittedly befuddled me quite a bit in the beginning. Um, I'm sure that I still don't quite either A, grasp it, or B, um, articulate it in a way that's best, but I'm going to try. Um, so, its main intent is to not specify things that you don't know. Um, so, if you don't know the reason for somebody's injuries, then don't say you do, or don't automatically assume you do. Um, and an, an antidote or experience that a friend of mine shares with me every once in a while is when he was treating somebody in Afghanistan, um, had treated him for some some normal mechanism injuries of a car crash, and, and that's what had happened, so that's what he's expecting. He had a tibia break, he lost some decent amount of blood. But once all those problems are fixed and the patient should be better, he's not and he continues to seize and he goes down a series of rabbit holes chasing down these problems, thinking all trauma, um, where eventually turns out he finds out that the guy has epilepsy and just having seizures. Um, again, it's a one-off antidote. I got it, but I use it as an example of had he just possibly taken a step back and thought about what he did know and not focus on um, things that he thought he knew, like it was the car accident that caused all the problems. He might have been able to get to that faster, and he says it, same thing, multiple times. Um, my experience was, had I not just treated Syria the same and tried to get everybody to put tourniquets on, I would have quickly saved more limbs by actually not putting tourniquets on. Um, because what was happening is these patients, or at least not, um, leaving them on for longer. Spaces were coming in, and every patient I would put back into the ambulance, um, as I'm seeing them go away, I see people taking the tourniquet off. 
I'm losing my mind. I'm getting hard, getting angry because I know that tourniquets are what saves freaking lives. And I was adamant that I knew what I was talking about and adamant that I knew the timelines. I knew when the tourniquet went on and I knew where they were going, etc. But it turns out I didn't know where they were going. And furthermore, I didn't know that the triage was taking much longer. Um, so that's, you know, it's things like that. Um, so I know I got like super in, in the weeds there, but for me, that was a confusing piece. So I wanted to touch base. Uh, sensitive, sensitivity to operations. So that one's a little obvious. That's why I feel like I can steal some of its time on uh, the re- reluctance to simplify. And that's really at the end of the day, like anybody who's been around the special operations communities or SF teams, et cetera, um, has heard or used the term bottom up targeting, bottom up intelligence, bottom up all kinds of stuff. Um, bottom line is, there's some more bottoms, is it's starting at the guys that are actually doing the work. All right. So that's the uh, sensitive, sensitivity operations is recognizing the guys on the ground and the operation itself on the ground has an effect on what's going on. And those people that are experiencing that are the most likely to know what to do then and there. Um, so that's kind of the way it goes. Uh, then commitment to resilience. So what you're doing there, it's kind of like preoccupation with failure, right? So um, with preoccupation with failure, we're looking and we're obsessed with what went wrong um, and like wanting it to happen so we can test out a new system and test out the way it's done. With commitment to resilience, it's almost like that plus the culture of, of doing that. So setting the stage so that others are looking to share their faults or their, the one-offs or the time things didn't work as well. Um, and then figuring out how to like plan for that as best as possible. You can't plan for everything, but you can build intelligent redundancy systems that apply more often than not to that kind of problem set. Um, so that's kind of what, what that is, is you're, you're trying to recognize those nuances um, and not ignore outliers. Because that's another problem that we get into with uh, a lot of research is the average research will see that there's spaces on there purposely designed to say, well, we didn't include these because they were outliers. Well, we go on the flip side and say, no, those outliers are symbols that your plan or your focus or your system had a fault. Let's capitalize on that. Okay. Um, one quick thing. Yeah. So the the commitment to resilience and constantly looking for failure and why it failed. Now, that's different than like zero tolerance. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Um, so we don't have we, whatever would be the opposite of zero tolerance almost. Like um, it's not, I don't know, full tolerance because we don't want, you don't have to go full retard. So you don't go full tolerance, I guess. Right. But um but the bottom line is we are encouraging people to share when they make a mistake and admit it or when not even a mistake, perhaps, but when the plan, the process, their knowledge, et cetera, didn't work so that we can go back and go, okay, how do we fix that? And we're by doing that, you create a culture where instead of hiding it, when things go wrong and then you can't improve, people will highlight it um, in a positive manner and then 
grow from that is the, the idea. It's really without going into another nuanced, um, thing that I probably don't understand as well as I should is being anti-fragile. So, um, short version of that is there's no actual word in the uh, English dictionary to be the opposite of fragile. Um, so resilience is usually the common one that comes up and that is simply the ability to not shatter when you're absorbed some kind of energy, right? So fragile, a shatter, resilience, I kind of bend or full move with the, the flow and then get back to where I was. Um, anti-fragile, like a bone and many other things in, in, uh, nature, once broken actually comes back stronger. So then it gets to the point where you're searching out those and I want to get broken as many times as I can. So I can have the super strong bone. So that's, that's that concept. Um, and people want to be there, but that's a good point. No, it's not zero tolerance. Um, although there are stages where there are places where it's going to be very dangerous to fail. Right. Um, and so we're trying to avoid that. Right. And I mean, it's, the point is to grow, not to fire somebody or right. burn somebody. Yeah. We're, we're not trying to do that. And we're trying to encourage people to be willing to take risks as well. Um, it, it should be a less risk adverse, um, environment. Um, which is also already an interesting thing. I think that I experience a lot is that term risk adverse, um, trying to get in the weeds, but a lot of hospitals and stuff you'll hear, oh, the hospital's super risk adverse. And I would argue that oftentimes it looks like they're quite the opposite. They're, they're willing to take a lot of risks in the goal to avoid lawsuit or in the avoid, but not necessarily in the goal to take care of patients. Not that hospitals are bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that sometimes that term is manipulated and misused. Um, but anyway, so difference, deference to expertise. Um, so deference to expertise is probably a hot button um, for a lot of people listening to me speak because I, I am so openly um, disruptive, I think, to the resurgence of the uh, evidence-based medicine concepts and, and and almost worship um so i want to kind of be clear one i do say resurgence because it is something that was around for a while and then we realized that we should probably just call it medicine um and then suddenly there's been this desire to, to change that to evidence-based medicine as if it's something more than it was um but i i do so to and bring it up so that everyone can see that i do have a, a great deal of deference for evidence-based medicine and for the the process of research and the scientific method of, of trying to make sure that what we do is correct. Um, and I apply that as often, like always, I guess, really, as much as I understand what's going on um, to everything I do, whether it be within the confines of a CPG or some other care, but also in the unconventional aspect. I'm just recognizing that something in Oftentimes, either A, my expertise and experience, or someone else's expertise and experience, or B, the environment has dictated that I need to change something else or has shown me a way to do that. Um, and so that's what that difference is there for. It's saying that we recognize that experts have done something multiple times in multiple environments. And so they are the ones that you should look to to say, hey, should I do it this way? I know the book says it this way. But is that exactly how I should do it? 
And I think we can all say that there's almost everything we've ever done in life. Once we start getting into the details and nuances of it, not everybody should do something the same way or should do it exactly the way the book says. Um, so that's there. And that's, I just want to make sure I explain that one thoroughly. Um, not just in this context of HRO, but in the ever infamous repeated chats of evidence versus environment versus expertise. Right. Um, I think you actually discussed that recently. So. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, just really quick on evidence, I think what it used to be, you know, before, you know, evidence-based medicine became super popular is, was just people's opinion. You know what I mean? It was like if you were the the loudest gray hair in the room who had been around long enough, everybody just took your word for it that this is this is the way we, it's been done, and that's the way we're going to continue doing it because you know Frank did it, and uh, he's a great American, so we're going to do it that way. Um, that's solid point. And so, you know, I think you know for anything, everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. You know, whether it be evidence from a paper, um, somebody's opinion, and, you know, what I believe is the right thing to do right now. You know, all of it has to be, you have to be willing to look at it. Like, is this really, does this really apply to my specific situation? And if it doesn't exactly apply, how can I manipulate it so that it will apply? Um, either that manipulate um, technique, manipulate the equipment, um, manipulate the environment, um, to make the situation work. Absolutely agree. And that's, to me, that's exactly, um, was, to be honest, that thought process that you described, um, is a perfect segue, uh, to like me discussing like what my full intent and my, um, like marching orders, if you will, um, was hopefully going to be when I completed this little um, sims of presentation, right? So what I tried to do is say that we, I wanted everybody to avoid doing tradition for tra for tradition's sake, right? Because um, what is pretty common amongst all of us to do is go, hey, what was your best practice? I want to do that. Or just kind of like you said, hey, what's what's the loudest uh, you know, most intelligent or most impressive dude in the room say it's supposed to be done like, you know, and how do we do that? And that's what I expected everybody was going to come to the, to this presentation on. At the time, I was one of the few that had done any kind of, you know, guerrilla hospital like work in the 21st century. And so, of course, they're all going to come here and they want to hear, like, how do I do it like you did or what did you do right or wrong or et cetera. Um, and instead what I want to say is the only thing I did right was I just came at it with an open mind and tried to figure out what was going on and how I could change what I thought I knew, um, every chance I could. Um, and the more and more I did that, the more and more I was able to kind of grow, um, and relook at everything I did. HRO just gave me the tools to properly contextualize the information that I was gathering um, and, and put that data in a way that I can handle. Right. Um, so I agree. Like that's 
a great point on on how you should be kind of looking at that. Um, so let's just say, you know, I want to I wanna kind of adopt this methodology. I'm not going to turn on a dime and change my entire thought process of something. Of those five points, um, is there any one of them that will stand out or provide me a, you know, kind of like a, um, a bigger bang for my buck if I focus on the one and then, you know, tackle the other ones as I can? I think the beauty of them is the answer is actually no. Not any single one of these is like more important or more um, influential than the other. And yet somehow they are. Um, what I mean by that is, and I hate like the Met TC or it depends type of answer, but it does. Um, depends on who you are, depends on the environment that you're trying to apply this in or the problem set you're trying to apply it in and those that are around you and surrounding you and, and how much freedom you have to do. So um, the beauty is that each of them, because they're equally strong, just enhance each other um, as you start to add them up. Um, and it's not until once you get to all five or would it, you know, more and more, they kind of are force, force multipliers um, in that process. So for me, the way I went about it was I looked at something I already knew pretty well, at least I thought I did, right? And that was the sensitivity to operations. I was like, okay, I think I've got a pretty good understanding of how to do this and how to understand that I need to adjust to the operation and not adjust the operation to me. Um, so I just kind of really looked at that and tried to make sure that I was actually applying it and not just saying I was. As I did that, I came across or looked at the reluctancy to uh, simplify, and that was really confusing to me. There's a lot of terms in there that I'm like, this seems to be countering exactly what you're saying to do. You're saying, like, you want me to complicate things? I've been saying for years, I've been told over and over again, like, to keep it simple, stupid. And and, and so how would this actually apply? Um, And it was even in my hubris of saying, oh, I understand what sensitivity to operations was that helped me understand exactly the problem set in reluctance to simplify. And what that was is don't say it's the same thing. Don't call something something you don't know. Um, so it's not saying, you know, again, that um, things shouldn't be simple or, or um, more efficient, right? It's really more saying, don't state things that you don't know. Focus on what you do know, and then just leave it unnamed until you can actually name what it is, so that you avoid that. Um, so I think that, to me, was really the big like game changer in my life. Now, for somebody else, it could simply be maybe a, the commitment to resilience and find that way to, to change the culture. It might be Something that really isn't being sensitive to operations. You know, there's a lot of organizations out there that aren't. So I think it would exponentially change some people. Um, so I say all that to say they're all great, um, in my opinion. But any given one, I'd have to really kind of, and, and I probably would be wrong if I told you what would be best for you, you know. Um, 
but look at it and what speaks to you and go from there. Um, and then just discuss it with other people. That's, that's kind of the way I would look at it. Okay. Is there any other like questions or thought processes that I, that I'm not really, um, defining well? Like where's, where's the, we'll play the HRO game. So let's, like, where's the fault in, you know, where the, in the outliers in, in what I'm trying to explain? No, I think you, I think you hit on them pretty well. I mean, um, just thinking of my, what I think of these five, you know, preoccupied with failure is, I think, just being honest about the process and, Maybe even something not not necessarily a failing, but didn't um, kind of work as advertised, and was sticking point. You know, having the honesty to say, okay, let's look at this problem, or even if it's it is an outlier, what situation caused this outlier to actually have an effect, um, so that we can at least at least be aware of it. That this is a sticking point for this situation. I think um, solid understanding. You know, uh, reluctance to simplify. You know, I definitely, I definitely can see the sticking point because I always try to simplify things as best I possibly can, just because I have limited uh, space between my ears. But um, you know, it's more of instead of uh, maybe instead of looking at the entire problem and identifying all the components of that problem, even if you don't know what they are, just being honest that you don't know all the problems, but you do know some of the problems, start with those. And then as you have time or headspace to, or help to uh, identify those other problems, then do so, but start tackling the things that you do know first. Um, I think it's pretty good. I think one other point I just going to throw out there with that one is um, that it's kind of like a ongoing suspicion of of things that are simple, right? So anytime you come across something that appears to be easy or to be very clear cut, the question should be, "What am I missing? Like, what nuance is it that that I didn't grasp?" Because that's because most things in in our um, environment and our working operations are not simple. So if they appear to be simple, you're probably simplifying in the incorrect way. Right. You probably don't know enough as much as you think you know. And that it's that unknown that's going to later then jump in and hit you. You're going to think it's an outlier truly, but the truth is it's symbols and um, symptoms Mm -hmm. were coming at you for a long period of time. Um, and the human body's like that, you know, like tons of like, oh, well, turns out this, that his blood pressure was a little bit off repeatedly or something else, but we just kept going, well, it's just, that's a one-off. Tinnitus, I think, is going to be the one that is going to be the great oversimplification of our um, time mm-hmm. soon. We've been ignoring it for years. Right. And it's probably something, if that makes sense, hopefully. Yeah. Um, uh, sensitive to operations, you know. You know, as an NCO, I definitely see this point of view, like uh, from the bottom up type information flow. Um, I would tag on that as maybe a hit to us about our partner forces. Why aren't they doing it the way we want them to do it? 
they may have some insight that you're not looking at. And you also have to be willing to listen, at least listen to why they're doing something. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying not to beat that drum over and over again, but, um, yeah, I, I could not agree more. And I was definitely, um, in many different deployments, but much more so in Syria, um, guilty of doing just that in the beginning. And it, it bit me in, in the butt a little bit and it humbled me later. So, um, you know, commitment to resilience, you know, that definitely sounds like a campaign slogan, but I think it speaks more to a culture of, you know, things, bad things are going to happen. It's, let's just all agree that that's going to happen. And, uh, we're going to focus more on, um, growing and learning from our mistakes rather than looking to uh, flame somebody. You know, obviously if they need to be flamed, then by all means do so. But, um, let's grow from it and understand what exactly was the, the problem to begin with. Yeah. And then, um, uh, you know, deference to expertise, you know, there's a lot of different def definitions, I think, of what an expert is. And just because somebody has been at the game longer doesn't necessarily make them an expert. I think who has the better context of the situation and um, maybe knowledge of the, the components of this problem probably lend themselves to be more of an expert than somebody who's uh, maybe classically trained in something. Yeah. Um, I think that can kind of go back to a little bit of, about your indigenous force discussion there too, um, where you're paying a deference to their expertise. They've survived um, that problem set longer than you have. So maybe whatever it is they're doing that looks to you like ridiculous or lazy or um, just outdated has a purpose and a reason. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in the speaking of the schoolhouse, I think we found that when we reached ICRC. I wasn't here for a while they, when they went over that, but Kelly was a great ass, um, asset to us in that fashion. And I think he kind of applied that kind of concept. Mm -hmm. So that's a to me an example of of it being applied. Outstanding. Well, um, well, thank you, John, for coming back on. No problem. Happy to do so. Um, yeah, and feel free to invite me along any other time. Hopefully, I'll actually show up like I did this time, rather than blow you off like usually. But, um, but yeah, I'm happy to be here. Really happy that you invited me over, and appreciate the time. Um. If there's a, if somebody's interested in getting uh, other resources, where should they reach out to? Uh, that's a great question. So um, obviously you can reach out to me, um, John Johnson. Uh, on, you can find me on psalmc.org uh, there. If you guys aren't aware of that, it's the Special Operations Medic Coalition, a nonprofit organization that I'm um, a co-founder or founding member of. Uh, helps try to enhance the Special Operations Medic in pretty much everything they do. Uh, pretty new, but I think we're on the right path of doing great things. Um, I try to stay pretty engaged on the different prolonged field care sites that we've got going on, prolongedfieldcare.org or any of the other um, Facebook sites. Um, yeah, so if you, you can email me at Jonathan, spelled Joe Nathan, basically, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N-4-2 at yahoo.com. If you want to just reach me there, 
um, just because I don't have all my other affiliation emails memorized. Um, I'm lucky I know my own phone number at least nowadays, right? It's all on the phone somewhere. Um, but yeah, so that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. As far as like resources that are out there, um, honestly, I I would just start looking at HRO. There's plenty of things on the internet. Um, Dr. Ryan Stralin is a, a great um, mind that kind of put a lot of this together. Um, Element Rescue is another great place to kind of look and hear me ramble more um, incoherently, more often than not with them. Um, they bring out my inner ADD. Dennis does a good job of kind of muting it. Um, but either way, we cover a lot of those talks, and they're just a bunch of super geniuses that can really break this stuff down a lot better than I can. So that's kind of the places I would go. Cool. Well, again, thank you. Thank you. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.